Good morning, and to those of you who braved the cold weather this morning, uh, I take my hat off to you. And whether you're here or online, we welcome you this morning. Uh, my name is Jerry Letourneau, one of the elders here at Community Covenant Church, and we are continuing in our study of Nehemiah, where today we'll be looking at chapter 2. I have uh, I've found that the Old Testament has been the place, uh, maybe more than any other, that has helped me to get a glimpse into how it is that God speaks to us and works in our lives. This may be a bit uh, surprising in that the New Testament was written almost exclusively, exclusively by those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus, God incarnate. But in the historical books of the Old Testament, we find uh, stories, biographies of the lives of just ordinary people, just like us, that God used for his purposes. Sometimes God would speak to these Old Testament characters in an audible voice, or in a vision, or in a dream. But many times, there was no voice, there was no dream, there was no vision, and yet in subtle ways, God called them and used them to achieve his own divine purposes. One example that stands out is the book of Esther. God used Esther and her uncle Mordecai to save the Jewish people from genocide, and yet the word God, or the word pray, is not found one time in the entire book. For those of us who wrestle with questions like, how can I know the will of God in my life? How do I know if God is working in my life? How can I hear God? Reading the lives of these Old Testament characters helps us to start to develop a sensitivity to how God is speaking to us. What Elijah referred to in the King James Version as that still, small voice. When we pray, most of us want clear-cut, black-and-white answers from God. A direction, turn left, turn right almost like the, the voice in our GPS. Unfortunately, there is not a neat little 12-step formula to how to hear and follow after God. The reality is that God really, if ever, speaks to us in an audible voice. And so it was for many of these Old Testament characters. But he does speak to us, and he's provided examples of the ways that he does so. And it's through the, biblic the, the biblical record of the lives of these Old Testament individuals that we can begin to develop this sensitivity to the voice and the ways of God. Nehemiah provides for us one of these biographical records showing how God worked in his life. It's through the... Uh, biblical record of these lives of these Old Testament characters that we can begin to develop this sensitivity to hear God's voice. So as a, as a, as a quick refresher to the setting of this book, of where we'll be this morning, the Babylonians invaded Judah about 605 BC. In time, they had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and the, and the, and the city walls. Many of the Jews were taken captivity and remained there for 70 years. And while they were in captivity, 
the Persian Empire came and invaded the Babylonians. And these new Persian kings were a little bit more sympathetic to the exiled Jews, and so they decided that they would allow them to return to their homeland. There was a first wave that returned uh, under Zerubbabel, and they worked on rebuilding the temple. Some 80 years later, Ezra returned in a second wave, and then in another 12 years, we find ourselves today in the book of Nehemiah. The opening scene of Nehemiah, we find uh, that Nehemiah is in the king's palace in the city of uh, Susa, where he served as the king's cupbearer. And we saw last week that when Nehemiah received news from some from, the, from Judah that the walls and the gates of the city had, had been destroyed, a burden came over him. God didn't send him uh, an angel or a message. He just simply placed this burden on Nehemiah's heart. And something happened to him. A fire was set inside of him that day. Chapter 1 tells us that he wept and he fasted and prayed. And we call from last week that this stirring of his heart brought about uh, repentance, where he asked for forgiveness, not only for himself, but also for the people. Excuse me. When chapter 2 opens, we find uh, that almost four months has passed, and Nehemiah is still heavy with his burden for Jerusalem. But God has heard Nehemiah's prayer, and he's been preparing both Nehemiah and the Persian king Artaxerxes for this very day, even the king. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. It turns wherever he wishes. King Artaxerxes was not a believer in the God of Israel, and yet God was able to use him for his own divine purposes. We saw this also in Exodus, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, again, for his own purposes. In Acts 4.27, we'll see that Peter and John, having been uh, released from the Sanhedrin, prayed and said, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the, gentles and the, people of, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to do. Look at what the text says here. God used Herod and Pilate to carry out what he had predetermined to do, the crucifixion of Jesus. Even as enemies of God, they were instruments in his hands, carrying out his plan. And, and we will see that God will do the same with Artaxerxes. And so I invite you this morning, if you would, to open to chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 1 in the book of Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Notice that Nehemiah says he was afraid. 
The kings of those days were considered to be like gods. It was considered one of the highest privileges even to be in the presence of the king. So if you found yourself there, you were expected to be delighted and overjoyed. And if you're familiar again with the book of Esther, you remember that even for the queen herself to approach the king unsummoned could result in her death. We also see in Esther that anyone who was in mourning was not allowed in the presence of the king. But in his role as the cupbearer, Nehemiah was a familiar face to the king. And on this day, the king detected some sadness in him. In ways that we're not told, God was beginning to work in, in the king's life. And again, Nehemiah had been burdened for several months with this. And during this time, he had never approached the king. He never manipulated those in the king's court for special favors. But we do see in the last verse of chapter 1 that Nehemiah knew that he would have to approach the king and make this request. He was legitimately troubled over this burden, and his sadness was leaking out. We've all been in that place where no matter how much we try to conceal it, we can't hide the sadness and the sorrow that's in us. But God made the king's heart sensitive that day to recognize that Nehemiah was troubled. Knowing what was expected in the presence of the king, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But Nehemiah finds himself here at a point of decision. For months he had been wrestled, he had wrestled with this weight for the city of Jerusalem. How often he must have lain on his bed and ran through all kinds of possibilities as to what could be done. There's no record that God spoke to Nehemiah in a vision or a dream. He never provided him some itinerary of this is how I'm going to use you to accomplish this. All that Nehemiah had were the months on his knees and this inner burning within him that something had to be done. Verse 3, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In a moment, in a moment, Nehemiah had to choose to either apologize and brush off the king's question with an excuse or he had to stand bold for what was in his heart. This was a watershed moment for Nehemiah. And again, very much like Esther, who found herself in a similar place and said, if I perish, I perish. Or, or Job, who said, though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. By faith, Nehemiah sensed that this was his time. He had to step out in boldness. And there's moments when, when we too have to step out in boldness and stand for something that God maybe has placed on our hearts. There's a danger that we become paralyzed as we wait for every I to be dotted and every T to be crossed, waiting for God to open a door. There comes a moment of decision when you have to trust that it's God that's opened this door. Wisdom and discernment to hear God's voice is something we must be constantly praying for. We continue in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. 
And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. As we saw in the proverb, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God had prepared the king's heart at this very moment. Rather than reacting in anger towards Nehemiah, he simply said, what is it that you want? Verse 4 says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Haven't we all been in that moment of suddenness when we just simply say, you know, Lord, help me? Or that quick, short prayer that says, Lord, please watch over me. Charles Spurgeon once said, God does not hear us because of the length of our prayer, but because of the sincerity of it. Prayer is not measured by the yard or weighed by the weight. And what we find is that Nehemiah had not only been preparing these last months, but he'd also been planning. Proverbs 16.9 says that a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Nehemiah wasn't hyper-spiritual about God's calling. Though we serve a, a, a supernatural God, we do live in a physical world that's governed by rational thought. Uh, the late Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to say that faith is not a leap into non-reason. Nehemiah wasn't waiting for God to restore the walls by some supernatural, miraculous act from heaven. He had taken some time to formulate some thoughts, and now it appeared as, as if God was opening the door. Nehemiah had planned his way, and now God was going to direct his steps. We continue in verse nine, uh, 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Nehemiah had thought quite a bit about this. We see that he was able to tell the king how long it would be. We'll find later that uh, it would be uh, almost 12 years before Nehemiah would return to the king. He'd also thought through the journey and that he would need letters of safe passage and that he would need permission to take timber from the king's forest. And as he so often does, when we find ourselves in God's service, God blessed Nehemiah above and beyond by providing for him not an escort of uh, his, his cavalry to be with Nehemiah as he traveled. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, 
They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We can imagine that Nehemiah's escort, cavalry, drew attention as they made their way to Jerusalem. Sanballat and Tobiah were leaders in the surrounding region, and as the text tells us, they were not happy to see blessing coming to God's people. If you remember from my study of Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. When we are fulfilling God's plan, we can expect also to face opposition. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying these three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. A couple things stand out. Nehemiah was commissioned with letters from the king and was escorted by the king's cavalry. This could have brought instant recognition and prestige to Nehemiah, and yet he kept a low profile. And when they went out to inspect the walls, he did so in the cover of night and with just a few men so as not to draw attention to himself. Those who are truly serving the Lord become genuinely humbled. Their hearts want more than anything to be pleasing to him rather than looking for the recognition or the applause of men. Also, perhaps because of the hostility of Sanballat and Tobiah, Nehemiah may have wanted to keep his intention secret until he was confident about completing his task. When he was speaking to the king, we saw that Nehemiah had done a lot of thinking and planning, and now we see that he actually goes out to see for himself the work that has to be done. This reminds me so much of Jesus in Luke 14, when he said, suppose that one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There is both a physical and an emotional cost that it's exacted on us if we're to serve the Lord. He wants us to be aware of what he's asking of us. And I think that the message is, do your homework and strive for excellence. Too often we settle for mediocrity. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatsoever you put your hand to do, do it with all of your might. We continue in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand, my God, of the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. It had been more than 90 years at this point since the first exiles went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And yet, after all of that time, the city walls still remained in shambles. The people became so familiar with the destruction that no one seemed to notice it, almost like a teenager's bedroom. But the truth is, whether in our yards, in our basements, garages, and sadly, even in our own lives, it's easy to become so familiar with our junk and our faults that we don't seem to notice it. And eventually, we even stop seeing it altogether. We all have junk in our lives, and sometimes it takes those that care the most about it to open our eyes so that we can uh, see it. Nehemiah told the people about his plan to rebuild, and he also told them how God's hand was on him and how God had moved the king in such a way as to provide full support for his plan. It became evident to the people that God was working through Nehemiah. And the people stepped up behind him, not just with moral support. The text says that they started to rebuild. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And now with the work underway, Nehemiah's opponents reappear. As we'll see later in the book, his, en his enemies eventually take a, a more violent approach in their effort to stop Nehemiah. But this first wave uh, of attack is ridicule. I'd be willing to say that most of us who are followers of Christ have at one time or another, whether it's to our face or behind our back, also have experienced uh, ridicule in the name of Christ. But look at how Nehemiah responds to this. He doesn't argue or try to defend his actions. Instead, he places God between himself and his enemies, claiming the God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah, like so many others throughout the Bible, put his trust in God. In spite of all of his planning and efforts, Nehemiah knew that success was in the hand of God. As Proverbs 21:31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And in a very similar way, we can summarize today's text by saying, Nehemiah prepared himself for the task he felt called to, but it was God who orchestrated the events in order to accomplish his purposes.
There's so much in these Old Testament stories, so much richness in God's word. It's always important to remember that when we, when we read the Bible, that the first rule of biblical interpretation is to interpret the text in its historical setting. What was the original author trying to say to that original audience that he was writing to? In this section, it would be that God was working through Nehemiah to achieve his purposes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But within this historical story, we can also gain insight as to how God works in our 21st century lives. The Bible was written over the span of 1,500 years by some 39 different authors. And yet, there is one common theme that runs throughout, and that is that mankind has sinned against God and has fallen out of relationship with him. But because of his great love, God has provided a way, a savior, to reunite mankind to himself. All through the Old Testament, we find foreshadowings or types that point towards this promised savior that God would provide. This is formally referred to as typology. And we're probably familiar with these and yet uh, may never have considered this as a method of Bible interpretation. For example, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God provided garments of skin for Adam and Eve as a covering. But in order to provide these garments meant the sacrifice of a life. This would be a type of the foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross as a covering for the sins of mankind. Moses was a type of Christ because he delivered the people from captivity. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 4, Paul says that the spiritual rock that the Hebrews drank from in Numbers 20 was in fact Christ. All of these are Old Testament types of the coming Savior. And we can see forms of uh, topology in this morning's text. Last week, Chris mentioned how Nehemiah left the comfort and security of the palace to restore the, and renew the brokenness in Jerusalem. In the same way, Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come down into our brokenness in order to restore and renew our relationship with God. We might also, from this morning, consider that just as Nehemiah also gathered a group of followers to work with him to restore the walls of the city, so also Jesus has commissioned his followers to work with him and his mission to reconcile mankind to God. We also see that just as Nehemiah uh, faced ridicule and opposition in his efforts to carry out God's plan, so also Jesus faced ridicule and opposition and ultimately death in his efforts, in his work in fulfilling God's plan. The supernatural nature and the depth of the Bible just comes to life if these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament start to emerge. And so as we, as we close, we take a few moments to think through these events in Nehemiah's life. 
where do we find ourselves today? Certainly as a church, we also find ourselves rebuilding. In the last 15 months, we've been rebuilding in preparation for a new lead pastor. Our prayer is that God will raise up the right man so that just as the people stood behind Nehemiah, we too might roll up our sleeves behind God's leader and build Community Covenant Church into the church that God would have it to be. Maybe as an individual, God has placed a burden on your heart, a calling to serve him just as he did with Nehemiah. This is how God calls us. Don't brush off that passion that's gnawing inside of you. Be aware of the seasons that Nehemiah went through. Prayer and repentance, spiritual, mental, physical preparation, stepping out in bold faith, doing the hard work and realizing that you will face opposition. Maybe God is calling you. Maybe you find yourself in a place of broken relationships. Perhaps God is calling you to be a Nehemiah who rebuilds those broken walls. Perhaps you're a, a Christian, but the cares of this world and the ways of the world have taken you off of the path that you know that you should be walking. Maybe those spiritual walls are not in the condition that they should be, and you've been under attack from the enemy. Maybe it's time and long overdue for you to take those steps to rebuild your walls. Or maybe it is that you're in need of the, of the true Nehemiah, that is Jesus Christ, the true Nehemiah who came to restore what nothing else can, and that would be your relationship with God. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If Jesus has never restored the walls of your spiritual life, then you're separated from God, just as we saw with Adam and Eve. But just as God used the sacrifice life to provide that covering for Adam and Eve, he's provided a sacrifice through the death of Jesus Christ on a cross to be a covering for us. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're separated from God. If there has never been a time, a specific time in your life, when you have asked God to repair that relationship with him, asked him for you to become one of his children, I encourage you in your own private time and in your own words to do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. And it's here that we come to know you. Help us to this morning to take these teachings of Nehemiah and implement them into our lives that we might know you better, walk more closely with you, and become more like your son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.